0: Welcome back. This week on the podcast, I talk with Elizabeth Howe. Elizabeth is one of the top space journalists there is. And I don't know about y'all, but in the past few years, I've just become more and more interested and fascinated with space, with space flight and just how big it is. And now with these new telescopes, how we are seeing different planets and we are discovering new, Um, supernovas and black holes and wormholes and just all the things in between. So I wanted to have an expert on to talk about all these different topics. And that is Elizabeth Howe. She is a journalist for space.com. She first fell in love with space um, like many people probably my age or around my age when she watched Apollo 13 in the late 90s with Tom Hanks. And ever since then, um, she has fell in love with space and everything that goes along with it. Um, she has a ton of experience in a number of different areas. Um, recently she has been really focused on the Artemis program, which eventually hopefully will put humans on Mars, which is really cool. Uh, but through the conversation, we talked through a number of different topics, um, about space and space travel, and I had a lot of fun having her own. Um, Before we get into the conversation with Elizabeth, I gotta talk about Sphinx. Sphinx has been an incredible partner of mine for quite some time now, and I love the synergy with Sphinx because many of us see Sphinx, we see their convenience stores, and they provide an incredible product, but what Sphinx does for their communities is what means the most to me. And a lot of people don't see that. They just see their convenience stores, they see their gas stations, they see their car washes. But Spinks invest in their communities. They have um, donated and invested millions and millions of dollars into nonprofits, into organizations like the March of Dimes. So go to the link in the show notes, or if you're just driving by and see the Spinks, stop in and support them. But you can go to their link, find Um, the location nearest you, and you can find all the things they're doing for their communities. Another incredible mission and a brand that I love that is part of the show is Rebel Rabbit. Rebel Rabbit is on a mission to change the way we socialize, change the way we drink, and their seltzers are alcohol-free. They're infused with cannabis, and they have two different levels. They have a mild hair and a wild hair so no matter where you are in your journey you can find a level that's perfect for you it's a great alternative to alcohol it doesn't come with any of the negative side effects as alcohol so you're going to get good sleep you're going to wake up and be able to be productive you're not going to have a hangover and they're perfect if you're just chilling on a sunday afternoon or you've gotten home from work on a wednesday and just want to kick back and relax a little bit a rebel rabbit seltzer is perfect for that Go to their link in the show notes. That'll take you directly to their website with the 20% discount already listed in. If not, you can go there and just add Life 20. You'll get 20% off your order, but they are racking up the retailers all over um, the country, so you can go there and find the retailer closest to you. and can go pick it up today or just order directly from them, and they will deliver it directly to your doorstep. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Elizabeth Howe. Elizabeth Howe, thank you so much for joining me. I know we connected a couple weeks ago and I've been looking forward to the conversation, but first off, how are you?
1: You know, I'm doing great. I uh, live in Canada. It's a little bit warm up here. I know that you Southerners, you know, probably will laugh, but we're not used to 90, 95 degrees in September in my parts in Ottawa, Canada. So we're uh, a little sweltering, but we're getting there. <laughs> did you um, Did you grow up in Canada? Yes, I did, actually. I grew up um, on the other side of the city to where I now live, but still was in great reach of my family and all the friends that I knew, too, when I was growing up. So I'm super lucky. Very cool. And uh, it's uh,
0: space has been a topic that I've always kind of, I think, known more about just because of my uncle. I told you he worked for NASA and he, worked, he works on the um, Artemis programs now. And But I never really dove into it and really understood it. And it was always kind of looked at to me as this like grand, big idea in a way. And in the last few years, though, I've gotten more interested in it. And that's why I was excited to reach out to you and excited that you accepted the offer to come on. And I'm interested how you first got interested in space.
1: Well, you can't see it here, but sitting in front of me is the biggest, most ginormous poster of Apollo 13, the movie. So as some of you may remember, back in the 1990s, there was this very um, kind of heart-pumping recreation of what happened when this mission went around the moon and they had a huge issue on the way. So I'm sorry, spoiler alert, they were fine, but I saw it um, on my last day of school or second last day of school when I was, I think, in seventh grade. And... Something just struck me. You know, I grew up in an aviation family, but I never had really thought about space like you until I saw it made concrete. A bunch of people were coming together in this Hollywood film to solve a big problem. And I thought, that's really cool. So, luckily, it was summer. And uh, luckily, also, there was a library close to me. So, I just walked down the road and I got the book that was based on the movie that was written by Jim Lovell, the astronaut, and Jeffrey Kluber, the journalist, really nice guys and uh, I started reading and I kept reading and reading and reading and I think that's all I did basically for the next 10 years (laughs) I probably went to school and had friends in there as well but I was uh, a little obsessed I have to say and it taught me a lot of good things you know about teamwork about uh, solving problems about trying to um, figure a way through uh, through things and then uh, many many adventures later it's been about uh, three decades I suppose I finally have landed in a full-time job where I get to talk about it all the time but uh I certainly had some fun adventures along the way
0: do you remember and it it could be apollo 13 which is a great movie tom hanks shout out to him and do you remember like the first time you were researching or studying something within space or within space research that you're like oh my goodness i love this
1: it was the movie i think because there's that scene where they're all getting together and uh, they're trying to solve this problem where there's too much carbon dioxide building up inside the spacecraft. And so the people out in space were experiencing this, but they didn't have the time to figure out how to build the stuff. And so down on Earth, they had this really nice scene where they were saying, okay, you got to build you know, everything that you need just using these materials. And then they dump them all out on the table and everybody goes to work and they come up with a solution, which is basically what happened in real life. It's somewhat simplified, obviously, but that's what happened. And, um, as I was progressing through school, people were telling me that I was a really strong writer, which was really nice to hear. Obviously, I had a lot of practice because I started writing when I was two. You know, that was another thing that I was doing all the time. Just whenever I had something interesting to think about, I would write it down. And so I had a lot of practice. And um, as I was trying to think about where to go for a career, um, my parents, actually very kindly, were saying that scene really struck them because they knew that I was a person who could kind of take the puzzle pieces like they were doing in that uh, movie and then put them together into something interesting. And so they said, you know, you really like writing and you really like space, you know, why don't you try and go in that direction somehow? And so uh, I happened to be in Ottawa, as I said, we have a really good journalism school called Carleton University, went there for four years and every chance that I had, I wrote about space. And then I went into the career, Um, 2007, 2008 was when I started a pretty hard time to start a career (laughs) for many people I have to say, so. I kept up and where I needed to, and I kept uh, trying my best to keep writing about space and learning about space, and I do have to admit there was a lot of privilege along the way, obviously, because I had great parents, I had um, this really strong foundation, I got to stay within my home city my entire life, but I still was learning, you know, and trying to make the best of uh, all the circumstances, and so whenever I needed a bit of inspiration, I just would fire up that movie and uh, watch it, and go, so, you know, things aren't so bad, you know, I'll figure it out, and... Uh, yeah. So, uh, So. yeah, I think it was that, you know, that one scene that really kind of struck me and made me think creatively about how to do a career because it wasn't laid out. It wasn't like I joined a newspaper and got to stay there for years. You know, I had to keep rebuilding and rethinking and uh, making my way. Yeah. And what um, what kind of led me to you was
0: the James Webb telescope and how they were finding out new things about the universe, right, that we maybe hadn't seen before or known before. So the first kind of thing I want to dive in is to the James Webb telescope. Can you kind of just describe what is the purpose of it or why it was created?
1: Oh, totally. So I'm from what's called the Hubble generation. So I'm getting kind of old, I suppose, but that's the Hubble telescope, right? And so when I was growing up, I guess it was subconscious, but you'd open up books and you would see pictures that were made by the Hubble Space Telescope, and then they're also measuring things like they saw that the universe was going faster as it got bigger, which is really weird. And it took Hubble and a bunch of other telescopes to confirm that they weren't, you know, seeing strange things that actually was happening. Physics is very counterintuitive. Anyway, Hubble's older now. It's been up in space for more than 30 years. And the challenge is we are keeping it going. You know, we've it's been repaired. There might be another mission to, uh, to do that sometime in the future, too. But you want to go further, right? You want to keep building on that. So the challenge with Hubble is, if this is the Earth, Hubble's right here, right? It's right next to Earth. And so you can't see around Earth, and the Earth reflects light, which is really bad for telescopes, right? Because if there's light, they can't see out in the universe. And so the idea with Webb was, or JWST, as some folks call it, is, if here's Earth, let's just keep on going and going and going. This is Webb kind of going away from Earth. You can't see my other fist, but it's going far, far, far away. So it's about a million miles away from Earth. And how so far there's is the Hubble. Yeah. So Hubble's just nestled up. It's kind of at about 500, 600 kilometers, I guess about 400 miles. And then uh, you got Webb is out at a million miles. It's quite a difference, right? And it has a really big mirror. It unfolds like a honeycomb. And that means that it can collect more light, which means it can see deeper into the universe, all the way to the early galaxies. And it's doing a tremendous job out there. So what it's trying to do is to uncover more about how our universe began. And then it also can swing around and look at all kinds of interesting things, right? It can look at planets. Hubble wasn't built to look at planets, by the way. It does that. But um, it wasn't built to look at exoplanets far outside the solar system. It only was optimized for Jupiter and Saturn and all those ones that were close by. But Webb is. And so Webb can actually look at a bunch of planets and tell us more about how solar systems were formed, just like ours, right? Mm -hmm. It can even look at our own planets, Neptune, Uranus, all those, to see what the weather is like, if it's changing, if there's anything we don't anticipate. So it's doing a great job. Yeah. I'm really did excited about it. Can you talk to me
0: about some things we've learned from the James Webbs Telescope?
1: Um, the challenge is it's such a new mission. Mm-hmm. It's only been out there for about two years. And so I can tell you about Some of the studies that we've done and some of the places that we've looked at, but in terms of sort of its impact, I can't even predict that yet because it's still in its infancy. It's going to be um, kind of working for another 20 years. And so um, I think the best way to stay up to date, if I could just put in one flag for where I work, is uh, I work for a great place called space.com. Whenever there's a picture, which is like every week, if not more... We put it up there and you can see the huge number of targets that it's starting to look at, it's starting to get data on. So it's got galaxies, it's got planets, it's trying to be looking at um, far out into the universe to look at the first galaxies as they were being born, as they were being put together. And then with every one of those pictures, you got to understand that there's also a background of science and data and papers that are being published. And it's this stuff that really drives the engine to keep Webb going. Because the more research that it produces, the more people are going to want to use it. And uh, the longer its funding will hopefully persist. So uh, it's it's cool. One of the hardest things, I think, for
0: people to understand is somehow we're looking back in time, right?
1: Exactly. We're looking right back to the beginning. How does of the that work? <laughs> well, I'm not a physicist, so I may get it somewhat wrong. But <laughs> essentially what we're doing is we're having a, a telescope with a mirror that's so big that it can collect a lot of light. And if you can collect a lot of light and you can focus in the right spot, then you can see photons or uh, particles, if I may put it, of light, that were starting billions of years ago. That's with a B, billions of years ago. And so because of its light collection ability, it can look just extraordinarily far back and see the stuff as it originates, which is, I agree, mind-blowing. You know, it's hard to think about too, and I do this all the time. (laughs)
0: Didn't we recently learn that the universe might be as twice as old as
1: um, that was a study that was published, and then there were quite a few folks, um, astrophysicists, that were coming out and had um, some issues with the study. It's rather complicated, but it just has to do with the way that they were measuring the rate of um, the rate of expansion. So as I said, the universe is getting bigger, and they had some quibbles with the way that that was being calculated in that paper. So I'd urge you to go and read the stories. It's a lot for me to kind of get out, out of the top of my head. I prefer to have like the research in front of me, but, uh, but yeah, I, I would not... Um, Take that as a last word at this time. That's for sure. Got it.
0: All right. I heard that, and then that was another thing that just kind of blew my mind. With yeah, yeah, totally. It's hard to wrap your wrap your head around it. With um, yeah. with your career, you've done. You, I mean, you've experienced a lot, and you've been able to, you know, go to many space uh, space launches, and you've done a deep dive into the Artemis program, and that's another program that I think is fascinating. Can you just speak to the overall, I guess, mission or goal of the Artemis program? And I know there's many Artemis missions, but oh, the overall totally. goal.
1: And it's dizzying, and um, we're still just at the beginning, so it may change. But Apollo 13 was that last big moon program with humans, right, where they were landing people on the moon, 12 folks landed on the moon. They were basically all the same kind of person. Most of them were test pilots, um, all of them were men. All of them came from very similar backgrounds in the United States. And so they did a great job. Please don't discount that because it's an incredible program, still inspires me to this day. But we changed a little bit as a society since the 1960s and the 1970s. There were more kinds of people that want to do this. And I think that's a great thing. The more perspectives we have, I think that space flight is safer, actually, when we have lots of people in the room with lots of different ideas and lots of different um, experiences. So the hope is we're going to be able to go back we're going to be able to use the resources on the moon because there's water. We didn't know there was water back in the 70s. Now we know because we've had new missions find it. So we use the water, we use the rocks, we use anything else we can to build a settlement. And then it's more sustainable to stay. Then you don't have to ship everything all the way from Earth. So then it turns into a series like uh, For All Mankind, for example, that Apple TV series, kind of like that idea, right? Where you're building stuff. It's going to be slow, though. So this is the way it's going to go. We had one mission already. It went around the moon with three mannequins, really cute, and uh, there was Sean the sheep and some Lego and a bunch of other stuff and satellites. and It was called Artemis One. It did really, really well, but there were no people, so we got to test it with people before landing on the moon. It's probably more prudent to go around the moon because that's the you know safer thing to do. So the next mission is called Artemis Two. And that's going to launch no sooner than the end of 2024. It could change if there's some technical things that need to work out. But they do have a crew It's three NASA astronauts and uh, Canadian. I'm Canadian, so I'm a little excited, as you might imagine. Then, after that all finishes, assuming that things go on time, it's the next one that's going to land. So that one's called Artemis 3. It's going to land on the moon in uh, 2025 or 2026. Again, that may change. There are some spaces to build. Um, SpaceX needs to launch and certify its Starship system. There's a lot of activity as we're speaking right now about Starship and kind of questions about when that's going to go, but some folks are hoping sooner, so we'll see how that happens. And then uh, once that lands, then that kind of opens it up for more missions to go in the future. So we'll probably see once every couple of years through the rest of the 2020s and into the 2030s, but that's assuming that we still have the funding and the will. And what's interesting is that every one of these missions is going to have a different type of person on it. So the Artemis two, for example, it's got the first woman to leave low-Earth orbit. It's got the first uh, person of color. And, of course, the first non-American, the Canadian that I mentioned. So uh, already we're starting to see it. And uh, I can't wait to see who's selected next for Artemis III. That's uh, going to be the big one, I think. <laughs> so for me, for me
0: to kind of wrap my head around it, though, is, is it for... And what I've read is to create a settlement on the moon to potentially one day go to Mars.
1: It could. It very well could. So here's a good way of thinking about it. Say you're going up Everest, which is a whole thing on its own, right? So only a few people get to go all the way to Everest. But it's really good to have a base camp to supply them, right? Because they need a safe spot to go back and forth to pick up equipment. There's also a spot for folks to, you know, go out and help them if they need that. Think of the moon like that, because the moon is only three days from Earth. Mars is something like six months, nine months, at least with current systems. That might change, but for now, it's six months, nine months. And so if we have folks that are on the moon practicing the routines, practicing how to be mining, practicing how to be living, practicing how to work in close quarters, I mean, Anybody who's been in a car or even a bus for any period of time knows how hard it is to work with your neighbor after a <laughs> while. So you got to work that stuff out on the road, right? And hopefully train for it beforehand. So um, the more that we can practice close to home, the easier it's going to be to go all the way out to Mars yeah. and do it out there when you can't just turn around. Watch The Martian if you want a good movie about how you can't turn around and what's happening. <laughs> uh, exactly. Yeah, with... Uh so we've learned like you said a lot
0: more about the moon than we knew you know years ago do we know if we can create like can we drink the water there can we figure out a way to make growth and make plants that sort of thing
1: so two parts i'll split that question into for my answer so the first thing is we're practicing on earth so one thing about the moon is it's a super remote environment to put it very simply right So all those skills that we've learned camping or all those skills that we've learned living in really remote places. Like in Canada, I immediately think of the far north because uh, that's tough, right? It's really dark for part of the year. The uh, the communities often it's like fly in or fly out or maybe a snowmobile in the winter, right? So it's really, really expensive and difficult to get stuff back and forth. So we can take those skills so we can pivot them over to the moon, first of all. And then the second part I would say is we found water. But the trouble is, we've seen the water from a satellite, right? So here's the moon, here's the satellite, and it's up here. You can only see so much from up here. I realize that we got supervision now, you know, high definition, but you're not going to really know until you go to the ground and start shoveling, so to speak. So, NASA has humans that it plans to bring there, and it also has a set of robots that it's going to be putting down there. And so those robots are like uh, rovers and landers and all sorts of little machines that are going to be exploring and seeing exactly how much water there is and to start to map it. Then, of course, there's a question of getting it out. And then, as you say, whether it's safe to drink. So it's not going to happen in a minute. You know, clearly it's going to take a few years, you know, just like any excavation. But I think it's going to be fun to watch to see yeah. what happens.
0: Yeah. yeah, it's kind of, it's, I mean, it's crazy. Like, that, and we always, th- I mean, I've always thought like, oh, some, a man going to Mars, you know, that's like the next thing. And like, this is the program that is designed eventually maybe to get, get a human on Mars. Is there, exactly. you mentioned SpaceX. What is the Starship program?
1: So um Starship is going to be what Elon Musk, the founder of uh, SpaceX, what he wants to do is eventually he probably would want it tomorrow, but I don't know exactly when, but he wants to send people to Mars. Now that's the goal. Um, how long it's going to take to get there is a question. The joke in the community is Mars is always 20 years away. So you talked to me in 1960. and would have said, oh, yeah, we're going to have settlements all over in the 80s, right? And clearly, you know. So before I make a prediction and sound silly, you know, that's that's kind of my background. However, the idea is this is going to be a big lift rocket. And it's going to send a lot of material out to the moon and out to Mars. Because once you got people there, they need things, right? I'm not just talking about, you know, little models and things, but we need food. We need structures. We need medical supplies. We need all this stuff just to stay safe. Um, Engineering supplies, keeping um, the habitats warm enough. Oxygen. All this stuff has to be shipped out there until we can figure out how to make it on site. So this is like a heavy lift truck that can do this. Um, But the challenge is right now, it hasn't yet, as we've recorded, left um, Earth and gone into space. He did do a launch in April that uh, did not finish as planned. And uh, there's going to be an investigation that's completing by the federal aviation administration to figure out what's next but meanwhile they've obviously been doing all this testing and getting it ready and so uh we're at an interesting moment i think where nobody really knows what's going to happen next i mean clearly eventually we're open for a launch yes but uh, exactly but how soon and what's going to happen is kind of what makes it fun to think about right because if it goes well then maybe we can get those artemis astronauts on the surface sooner for example so I can't wait to see so for the starship it's like a it's a carrier for it's a big um it'd be better if i had a picture in front of me maybe you can pull one up for the show notes but essentially you can picture like a really really big space shuttle looking vehicle that's what it is a nice big silver vehicle that has a huge cargo hold that can hold this stuff and supporting it is a big rocket that's called super heavy And when you stack the Starship and the Super Heavy together, it's the tallest rocket in the world. So that's how this thing is. It's just massive. And apparently those who were lucky enough to watch that launch in April saw quite a show. Because it makes... If you ever get to see any rocket launch, you'll know that you're watching and you see the thing go up. But the speed of sound is slower than the speed of light. So you see it go, but you don't actually feel the vibrations until several seconds after. And so from what I understand, the vibrations were quite intense. You could see and feel quite a bit after that thing went up.
0: What are um, things you remember most about some of the launches you've been to?
1: I've been lucky enough to be to six. And um, I'm just trying to think about all of them in sequence because there's been a lot of fun ones. I went to three space shuttle launches, and then I went to the ones in uh, Russia before everything started to change out there. Mm -hmm. Um, I think actually I might go with my last human mission out in Russia that was out in 20 that was 2018. So what was interesting was they have a system called Soyuz. it's super reliable. it's been running for about 30 40 maybe even 50 years now quite a long time many many decades anyway and unusually there was a Soyuz spacecraft with two people on board it launched and there was a problem with the rocket a very very simple one as it turned out, but it was enough to cause an issue and just as designed, the spacecraft left. And it parachuted back to Earth. And the guys were okay. They even went for lunch afterwards with uh, the director of the the Russian space program. So clearly, they might have been a bit shaken up, but they were healthy enough to eat. Um, They were medically assessed. All was well. And they went back into space um, a few months later. But what was interesting was that was the last launch before I went. So you can imagine how I woke up on launch morning. You know, I'm I'm out in Kazakhstan. The, uh, the launching pad is in Kazakhstan under uh, Russian territory. And I woke up before dawn and I just was thinking, I sure hope they fixed it. And I mean, I knew that they had tested it. I knew that they had run missions up into space, but it's always a part of your mind, right? You know, so i hope, I hope that they got it right, you know, because my Canadian is going to be on board. And then uh, it was freezing. It was minus 40 almost, both Fahrenheit and Celsius. And so we're all bundled up. And we're heading out to the uh, the launch pad. And what's fun is that the viewing area is actually a little bit closer because the rocket's a bit smaller, you know, so there's not as much risk. And so we got to go up close and just stand there in the cold. We are like chattering and trying to move around. So people had equipment that was breaking down in the cold. It was really entertaining to uh, just see the problem solving to try and get that all fixed. And then um, when this thing launched, I was standing there with my friend uh, Sean. He's a Canadian uh, photojournalist here in uh, Ottawa as well. And Sean said to me, uh, hey, uh, can you hold up this big cardboard piece? And I'm going to try and um, take a picture of the rocket going through the piece of cardboard. It had like a little Canadian symbol on it, you know, just as your Canadian is going up into space. And so the Canadian's name was David Saint-Jacques. And despite everything, despite the cold, despite the uh, the snow, despite um, this abort happening beforehand, the launch was beautiful. And I'm standing there holding this thing and just trying to be ultra, ultra still. And I have to say that I know that you Americans have these well, moments a pride, right? Where you're watching movies or you start looking at. Movies. And I had one of those while I was watching my Canadian going up there. It was the first time I'd ever seen a Canadian astronaut right in front of me go into space, and it just went beautifully. So I had a lot of respect for how they hit that rocket in just a few months.
0: Rebel Rabbit is on a mission to provide a healthier and smarter way to socialize and drink their alcohol free cannabis infused seltzers are perfect for anybody just trying to kick back and relax after a hard day at work or on the golf course with your friends or hanging out at a party and you want to wake up and feel better the next day their seltzers are perfect for you they are a great alternative to alcohol as well their website is drinkrebelrabbit.com use promo code life 20 you'll get 20 percent off your order that link is in the show notes but join the mission and start drinking and socializing smarter with rebel rabbit seltzers. Can civilians go to the rocket
1: launches? Yes, they can actually. Um, I wouldn't recommend Russia right now for a lot of reasons we do need to get into. But um I think some of your best bets actually might be the Kennedy Space Center, because there were lots of beaches and places where you can stand all the shoreline and watch it go. So um SpaceX sends something up there almost every week near wow. the Kennedy Center. Yeah so just watch the launch schedule Other, understand it might change but try and book like a solid i mean this is privilege of money obviously but if you can get a solid few weeks in florida you're probably gonna something right and then um just pick a spot on the beach bring lots of food lots of water stay comfortable and then try and stay up to date with your uh, your updates and uh fingers crossed it's gonna go right yeah and then that, but that's not the only spot i mean i know that there are many americans around many states um, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, there's a launch range not too far from there. So you can try out of that region. They usually go to the planets, which is kind of cool. You'll see like Mars missions and stuff there and security missions for the U.S. Space Force. Or another option too, if you're kind of northeast, is uh, Wallops. And that's a really interesting area. It's very rural. It's going to be harder for you to get to. But if you can drive out to Virginia or even somewhere nearby the coast, you can see this thing go. and understand I mean you could be close enough to see the rocket and to feel the vibrations and all that but you can also be maybe a few miles away and even just see the light of it yeah which can also be really really interesting right so there's a lot of different ways to experience a rocket launch very cool is there yeah. um
0: what's the uh, relationship now between NASA and SpaceX
1: SpaceX supplies all this stuff for NASA it's a trusted partner it's been doing so for gosh. 12 years, 15 years now. So they do a couple of things. They send cargo to the International Space Station that's using their cargo Dragon spacecraft. They send people to the International Space Station, that's with their crew Dragon spacecraft. Same idea, but with crew and with more life support systems and stuff. And they also send up satellites, which is really important because we need satellites to communicate with each other. I mean, it's only because of satellite that I'm sitting up here in what usually is a frozen north, not in a September <laughs> perhaps, especially right now, but, you know, that's the only reason I'm able to talk to you. There's a satellite up there, you know, sending our stuff back and forth, which is crazy and, uh, to talk about, too. Yeah, it's, it, this is not something that was around in the 1990s and the 2000s, and if I might just get off track really quickly, the movie Contact, where they were doing video calls, for those of you who were younger, that was not a thing back then. It was really weird. I was watching it, like, how are people talking over video? I can barely do dial-up in my house. So anyway, Um so satellites for communications and also for Earth, because we want to see what's going on with all these storms and how to predict and how to keep populations safe. And so SpaceX provides a lot of infrastructure for NASA, both for a space station, but also for the rest of us, essentially. Yeah. yeah. Is there
0: um other countries in their space programs? Do we work with them? Well, you know, what is that type of relationship with? Because I remember, like, if we think back yeah. to the Apollo missions, is like the space race and future yeah. was going to get there first, and it's almost like a competition.
1: It's so difficult to kind of put that into a few words because there are a lot of countries that are in space right now. I mean, back in the 1960s, there were the Americans and the Soviet Union, and that was basically the two big powers that everybody was clustering under. We did have other folks working in those programs that weren't American or Soviet. Like here in Canada, for example, we had this program. To go out track again it was called the avro arrow it was a super advanced fighter and then it got expensive and our government got a little scared and they said you know what we don't feel that it's good to be supporting this program for various expensive reasons so we're just going to shut it down all of a sudden we had these highly qualified people out of work and nasa said hello how about you come over here and about a dozen of them, I think, or so, maybe twenty, went down to NASA, and they helped build the what became the Apollo program and Gemini and Mercury, Mercury and all those. So anyway, they were clustering under those two. But now there's like half a dozen, eight launching states, at least, right? It's all. Um, India has done some. Yeah, India just tied it on the moon, right? Like, who would have thought about that back in 1968? <laughs> so maybe the best way that I can explain it is. We have these frameworks and people tend to kind of cluster with the framework because it's sort of an easy pointer. So the International Space Station, there's a big one. We've got what, like 24, 26, something like that. A lot of countries that are working together on that and continuing to work on that, even with geopolitical difficulties. And then um, many of those people are now working on Artemis as well. A notable exception is Russia for obvious reasons, but it's committed to staying with the International Space Station at least until 2028. That was actually confirmed uh, this morning on the filming. So, you know, we know that they're in it for a while. So mostly it seems to work out pretty well for a couple of reasons. The first thing is I think that there's an understanding that in a remote environment such as space, you have to sort of look to each other as um, team members. Because the moment that you start to bring up all your differences, it becomes very dangerous. And I'm not just talking in a political sense, but in an environmental sense. Mm-hmm. Because if you're sitting there focusing on the other person's gender or nationality or how bad their breath smelled this morning or whatever, and then a problem happens, that distraction may end up being very bad, mm-hmm. right? You focus on your mission and not on all the differences that are there. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing is I'm not a politician, nor am I an expert in space policy, but some folks, think that these types of missions are good as a policy tool to get people used to working together on bigger projects, and then hopefully that leads to better things uh, here on Earth. I don't know how effective that is, and I'm just saying that gently. I just don't know because I don't have that expertise, but that is one of the arguments that you sometimes see put forward. Um, I do like to think the best of people, and clearly you know, at the International Space Station, it's done really, really well with that. So I had a lot of hope going forward for that program and also for the moon.
0: With um, the International Space Station, it's been there, for goodness, what, 25 years or something?
1: Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Since uh, 1998 was when the first module went up. Dang, yeah, 25 years. Is there? um,
0: What are some of the current missions they're working on now at the International Space Station?
1: They're trying to get people to stay up for longer, and they're trying to figure out what happens when you're floating around for six months or even a year. Because when you're doing that, you're putting a lot of strain on your body. And I realize it sounds super relaxing. I'm a pool. I'm not doing anything, right? <laughs> it actually is bad. If you ever saw the movie Wally e and how everybody's just kind of looking like jello, you know, in that movie, that's kind of how you're going to be feeling if you're not exercising and trying to get strength your your strength going regularly. So the challenge is trying to keep people safe up there. And then what they do is they take those treatments and they pivot it. To folks who have maybe muscle disorders or who are aging or who have osteoporosis or all these other conditions here on earth even balance you know it's another thing you could think about Mm. so that's what they're really trying to be working on because it helps all of us eventually with medical treatments and then it also helps with that trip to mars because think about it you get on your spacecraft you're floating and not exercising your body in the same way for six or nine months you get there and then your space agency says hello trying to build a habitat and you're like, how? You know, I can barely lift my head. How am I supposed to be building this habitat? And so these are problems, you know, as much as I'm joking, um, we need to know how to keep people safe and secure because if they can not build their habitat on Mars, there is no mission. They have to yes. turn around. Yeah. Didn't you, um you, wrote a, you helped write a book about that, right? Yes, about I did. The body? Yeah. It was a really fun book called uh, Why Am I Taller? And it's because when an astronaut goes into space uh, or anybody goes into space for a length of time, their spine begins to lengthen, because there's nothing pressing it down, which is really weird. So you do get a bit taller, and some people actually get a bit of backache, if you can believe that there. And it was me and also a a really, really capable real-life space doctor, Dave Williams, who's run a couple space shuttle missions here for Canada.
0: Dang, very cool. What's uh, one of the more interesting things you learned about what happens to the body in space?
1: I think one of the more interesting things is our eyes. We still know so little. I mean, I'm sitting here with glasses, so I clearly understand about at least uh, minor contacts, audience, right? So yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. So there you go, right? So many of us have differing levels of visual acuity, but here is the weird thing. Another Canadian astronaut, Bob Thirsk, he was up there in uh, the late, uh, sort of about 2009, 2010 period. i have to look it up. Anyway, so he's got this checklist in front of him, and he's just passed his medical on Earth. He's feeling pretty good, right? And so he's like, oh, yeah, I, re- I just read this checklist on Earth. It's going to be no problem. Wait a second. I can't read the font what's going on right and so he calls down as you should right and eventually they got some equipment up there and they began to take a look and it was him and another crew member that were both having the same problem and they noticed that something about the eye changes while you're up there it's your shape the shape of the eye very very slightly begins to distort and makes it harder to focus and see what you're looking at now why is still being investigated if you can believe us more than 10 years ago right But um, a lot of theories, there are some, but there's some about the floating, maybe that has something to do with it. Um, Maybe it could be the carbon dioxide concentration on the station, maybe something to do with your genes that just gets triggered while you're up there. And so believe me, NASA is working very hard on this problem, and they've made a lot of progress. But I think that that's one of the more interesting things to look at, right? Because who would think your eyes Mm -hmm. would change so much while you're up there? And to be clear, many of these astronauts came back and they were fine, okay, you know? So is it permanent change? It could be in some cases, but not all cases. And also, we're not talking, you know, from normal vision to something that's very, very detrimental or very, very changed might be the better word. So it's not like they saw a, a ginormous change, but it went from being able to read eight font really clearly to maybe a 10 or a 12. So you can understand that you would notice that in House of Concern, like many of us with age, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. In your idea, in your your thought, your prediction, do you believe we'll have civilizations on different planets?
1: Oh yes, I do. But just don't ask me what I have no idea. <laughs> Again, the Mars mission is twenty years away, so I could sit here and go, "Oh yeah, by twenty forty three, we're good." You know, we're on the red planet, we're ready. And then, you know, I'm an old woman, and uh, the, the, there's no mission out there, and you're all going to laugh at me. So anyway, <laughs> I do believe. Yes, let's on my. Um my I, my understanding of the
0: Artemis missions we are on the right track to do that yes. cuz i i like you said like if i was in was 19 2000 you know and i was 13 14 years old i'd have been like oh we're get, yeah we'll be in mars in 20 years but now we're 20 years later and i feel like we've just actually started a program that is going to put hopefully you know humans on mars
1: Exactly. And to be clear, there have been efforts. You know, it wasn't like in 1972 when the last Apollo mission was on the moon. We just said, okay, that's it. Forget about the moon. We're never doing this again, right? Every so often NASA or the president or somebody else would try and restart it, but you got to get some momentum behind it. It kind of has to be that right moment. You know what I mean? How often when you're trying to go for a goal, you're just like, you know what, this summer, I got a lot of expenses. I just can't do it. you know. So that's kind of the same problem, right? You're trying to shoot for this goal, this policy goal, but then other barriers keep coming up to make it happen. And so I think this time what changed was that more countries are available, right? And so that creates both collaboration and competition, depending on what side of the coin you're looking at. And another thing too, is we have all these companies now. I mean, SpaceX was barely around in 2000 when Got interested, right? And now they're a powerhouse. They do quite a lot of stuff, so we can actually outsource, just like uh, some of the rich people do, right? But you outsource some of your difficulties to these companies, and so NASA says, you know what, SpaceX? How about you do the lander? We're going to supervise, obviously, but as long as you got your technical stuff together and you know you keep going with that same excellent degree of care you have now, Mm -hmm. you're going to be fine. You know, you're going to get our astronauts down, and that we don't have to pay for all of it, right? We give a little bit of funding. And then SpaceX uses that funding for its own missions in the future. So it's actually really cool. It's kind of like watching a company develop with that venture funding that you see at the beginning of their their lifespan, right? And so the venture funding comes in, which is in this case, kind of like government funding. It gets the system together and then they can go and resell it and then generate benefits that you can't even imagine. And so, all this wasn't possible right in 2000, but now that there's more independence and there's more countries participating. I think that made the cost more affordable and easier, not easy, but easier <laughs> with
0: uh, with you, let's say you like walk you are walking down the street and you know you're talking to somebody that you say i I work in the space industry, you know, like what are the yeah. first kind of questions you normally get from people about space?
1: So the first thing I do is I clarify what I'm talking about because they might think I'm an astronomer or something. And so I say I write about space and then I usually bring up um, planets and Elon Musk because those are things that most people can identify with, right? Um, I treat folks with a lot of respect because they have expertise in fields I can't even imagine. I can't repair my car, okay? I have no idea how the car works. The car guy I trust. We actually have a great guy around the corner. I really like him. So, you know, but he's not going to be about the car i'm doing a lot of research to catch up believe me but if he tells me something i just have to kind of take that as my first step and then go from there mm-hmm. so i try to treat people with that same respect when it comes to space and to let them lead the way and so when i come to them and say hey i write about planets and uh, elon musk then i rate to hear back to see what they want to talk about because sometimes it's about movies you know and that's a whole other fun conversation right all the great movies and tv shows coming out lately sometimes it's about education uh, sometimes it's about diversity and equity um, or sometimes I just want to know what's going on right now because it's not reported a lot in the mainstream media. I think still space is more than it used to be, but it's such a confusing and technical field that I can agree there's some intimidation, right? Mm-hmm. But luckily there's also a lot of YouTubers and independent folks that are doing great reporting alongside the rest of us. And I think that makes for a really interesting community because you're, you've got a whole lot of different types of people participating. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm learning just as much from those folks as hopefully they're learning from us as well, right, as I'm sitting there alongside them. There
0: has been, I think, um, maybe you're right, maybe not on the mainstream media, but there has been a peak in interest, I feel like, in the last few years. And maybe it has to do with Elon Musk and SpaceX and some of these movies. Is there a movie outside of Apollo 13 that you love around space?
1: Um, The Martian is another big one. I was just joking with a friend about that on Twitter or X or whatever you're calling it the other day. (laughs) Because, uh, you know, what I liked about The Martian is it made space really approachable. The whole thing is, it's it's done with a light touch of humor while still illustrating a really serious situation. I'm trying not to spoil it too, too much for people. And um, I just found it an absolute joy to watch because basically the aspect, without getting into spoilers, is... Yeah, you you have one problem and you solve it and then another problem is going to come up and you solve it and then another problem comes up. And that works everywhere, right? It could be my broken down car, you know, around the corner talking to my friend over there. Or it could be Apollo 13, the space mission. Or it could even be just trying to figure out how to get into school, you know, if you're trying to get into college. And you don't know where you're going to get the funding and you don't know how you're going to go to the residence. You don't even know how you're going to get across the state because there's no college that's close to you. And so there's all of these problems you got to solve along the way. And with every one... You got to grow a little bit and then solve the next one and the next. So uh, th- that again is one of my favorites, a little older, but still one that I really enjoy. No, it's, it's really good. Is there, um,
0: I read that you potentially one day would want to be an astronaut. Is that still an
1: interest of yours? Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs>
0: What's the <laughs> process an individual needs to go through to become an astronaut?
1: Well, it depends on if you're paying for it or not, but <laughs> okay, seriously, Um, So the reason I said that is we have a lot more options now. We've got Virgin Galactic. We've got Blue Origin. And if you have even more money, you might consider Axiom Space, for example. Those are all companies that have sent people to space that usually pay for their seat. The starting price is somewhere around $400,000. It's so appreciated when I say that's a lot of money and that most of us don't have access to that money. But at the same time, there are organizations that step in and that fund in many, many good circumstances, people to go up there. Virgin, for example, just was partnering with a company, uh, an entity rather, called Space for Humanity, which um, brought up two folks from the Caribbean into space. They couldn't afford the tickets, right? But uh, they allowed a couple of folks to go to experience it and then to go back and to interact with their communities. So that's the paying route. The non-paying route is usually going through some kind of a space agency or a little bit more a private company, like being an astronaut instructor for Virgin Galactic or something. So if you're going for an agency, in NASA's case, they recruit about every two or three years. You generally have to be between about, I guess about 25 and 50 is sort of loose, but that's kind of the age range they usually hire folks. They want you to have an advanced degree in something. And if you're military, a lot of flying time too is uh, beneficial. And another thing too to think about is, A lot of experience in remote environments. So let me give you an example. Christina Koch, um, K-O-C-H, but pronounced Cook. She's on the Artemis 2 mission. She's one of the NASA astronauts. She used to be an Antarctic scientist, okay? So you appreciate if you're working in Antarctica that things are going to break. You're going to be cold. You're going to be, you know, probably in some degree miserable, you know, but trying to take the best out of it, right? That's really good experience for climbing into a spacecraft, I would imagine, right? Like that'd be the person I would want with me because when something breaks or when things get tough you know she already has the resources for how to deal with that another good example is laurel o'hara who is a nasa astronaut going up in september at this time that might change but anyway she's going on a soyuz spacecraft her whole job used to be working with um, marine submersibles, so in other words like little vehicles that go in the water like alvin jason like that series of things and again you're out in the field your submarine refuses to go what do you do You can't just go over to best buy and get another transponder right you gotta you gotta get it working on site so that's what they want they want somebody who's used to working in a really difficult environment and solving problems in a small team and so if you can demonstrate that you've got a better chance and then i guess the last thing is you're probably going to be rejected the first time and the second and the third so you just keep applying you know most people start in their 20s and they keep on going and then, you know, 8, 10, 12 astronaut selections later, maybe in their 40s, they'll get in there.
0: <laughs> yeah, persistence. You have yeah. to keep on trying. Exactly. Is there, um, what, what is, and it might not be the Artemis, something outside of the Artemis, what are some future projects you've maybe heard of or things that might be in the works?
1: For NASA or for other countries or both? There's a, yeah, just for space uh, travel. There's a lot of stuff that's going on. It's actually very hard for me to keep track of it all. So, I think that one thing to really watch for. Let's let's start with India. So, India, as many of you probably know, just became the latest country to land on the moon, which is no small feat. It's very very difficult. A lot of other countries have tried recently, and it's hard. You know, that was you had just these a few days there. ago, right? Yeah, it was not too long ago. They landed something, and then they had a rover, and the rover went out and it took pictures. It was great. And now, as we're recording, it's hibernating, and we're hoping it's going to wake up. But even if it doesn't wake up, huge success. they have met every single milestone they could imagine and more. So, they want to send their people into space now, on top of their own rockets and with their own spacecraft. And they have a lot of history they can point to, because India has one of the best rocket programs in the world. They have been sending stuff up to space, satellites, um, payloads, for decades. And now they clearly have interplanetary experience, too, to help them out, Right. And so I I really do believe that it will happen eventually, as long as they can continue with the funding path and do it with um, maybe some guidance from others. And then um, we have other programs happening too. I mean, look at China, it's got a big space station and a program that keeps on growing. They're sending all kinds of folks into space into there. And um, we also have Russia that is planning to restart its moon program. Mm -hmm. They didn't have success this time, but they're planning to try again and to uh, do it in the future. We'd maybe even send people one day with China, which would be really interesting to watch. And then, uh, of course, we've got other space agencies. Like, I'll give one for Canada because I'm from Canada. and I haven't been too, too, um, you know, patriotic yet. So I'll just do one. We have a little little mini rover that is supposed to be going on the moon around 2026. And what really is fun about that for me is that we're a small community up here. Space is small overall, but in Canada, it's super, super small. And everybody who has ever touched lunar exploration and especially craters knows of the person who's leading the science. His name is Gordon Ozinski, and he works for a really great place called Western University in London, Ontario, not UK, but Ontario. And um, he's going to be heading up the science, and it's going to land on the moon, and it's going to have instruments on board, and it's going to trundle around and do a little bit of science. And um, we're doing it on our own, right? Have some help from launching, but once we get there, that's going to be mostly Canada leading the way. And for a little country like mine, I mean, we're big geographically, but small in population. That's huge, you know, to have a a, a mission like that going on. So I can't wait to watch it go.
0: Yeah, you can be. Yeah, definitely. You got to take some pride in that. Engineered sleep makes the best mattresses out there. Sleep is the number one thing you can focus on right now to better your performance on a daily basis, and you might as well be sleeping on an Engineered Sleep mattress. Like I said, their products are the best, and their customer service is second to none. Their website is engineeredsleep.com. If you use promo code LIVE15, you'll get 15% off your order. So if you or someone you know is looking for a new mattress, reach out to the team at Engineered Sleep, and they'll hook you up. Again, their website is engineeredsleep.com. Use promo code LIVE15 to get 15% off your order. What do you think about aliens? What about aliens? There's lots to say. Do course. you think there is life outside of humans on other planets already? Or had there had
1: a contact line and say, yeah, there should be. Otherwise, it would be an awful waste of space. <laughs> Wait for a minute
0: and i don't know if uh that's been some of the uptick in interest or you know media coverage because i guess some more of that has been coming out and i feel like i've seen more alien talk in a way uh, uh, other spacecraft talk in a way um, exactly peak people's interest
1: it's interesting um so i'm not a military expert but i'm watching with just as much interest as anybody else because I both know that craft can be more capable than we take, than we can imagine, right? You know, in terms of even what humans can build, but also it's fun to sort of think about other possibilities, right? And that's why I'm glad it's being talked about. I don't know how much can be released in the end because of security reasons, obviously, but we'll just have to keep seeing and um, wait for, you know, more information to come out. But uh, who knows, right? It's good to uh, keep your mind open.
0: Yeah, and I didn't know, you know, from somebody in the world that you live in, in this, you know, NASA, SpaceX, you know, rioting media coverage, if it was talked about frequently.
1: It is talked about frequently, and it's been done more so recently because of all those hearings. And so you have to imagine that somebody like me, I get dozens of press releases a day in my inbox, right? But you can kind of see trends, Right. So for a while after WebQ went up, the JWST telescope, um, there were a whole lot of things about um, that telescope. And then because the projects were smoothing out and there was less to talk about in the moment and more longer term, the press releases slowed down. They never stopped, but they slowed down. And then as something else comes up, such as these hearings, then all of a sudden you'll get a surge of interest and experts and commentary about aliens, Mm -hmm. right? And then that will go away, and something else will take its place. It's just like everything else, right? I mean, I realize that you know Taylor Smith, Swift and Barbie and some other topics, right? They come up in the news, out in the news. Um, but it's just a way that a news cycle works. So I agree. You know, it's something that I've seen more interest in lately, and we'll have to see how long it persists. But uh, I'm glad that more questions are being asked about it. Yeah, me too. It's uh, fascinating. It- what do you have a favorite planet? My favorite planet. I got a favorite moon. I would have to take that over. I mean, obviously Earth, I would guess, because I'm you know living on it. <laughs> that, that, that. Outside of Earth. Earth. Yeah, I guess outside of Earth, yeah. Uh, and you six, can
0: answer moon, like I don't know Yeah, another moon out there. Like it still blows my mind.
1: Just i just kinda quickly thinking through it's it's hard for me to choose. It's like choosing a child, right? You know, because they're all they're all really interesting. Um I like the idea of being able to stand on something. So I'd probably say Mars. You know, it seems like it's something I could actually picture myself being on. It's, you can't really stand on the surface of Jupiter in the way that you stand um, on Mars. And so that's one place that interests me. Um, I think one of my favorite moons or most intriguing moons is Europa. And um, I remember seeing those pictures from a long ago mission called Voyager that went by there. And it's still operating, by the way. It launched in the 1970s. I wasn't born yet. And it's still doing its thing way out there in space. But the point is it's swung by jupiter it's swung by europa the moon that's nearby and it took these pictures and for years uh, i still have it somewhere i think i had this really cool image that was taken by voyager of the crescent of europa and it looks just like our crescent moon except there's ice on it which is just really weird right and so i've been wondering for a long time what's under that ice you know is it like the europa report you know like that movie or is it something else who knows and we're going to be sending out a mission real soon to start answering those questions. So um, NASA has a mission called Clipper, Europa Clipper. It's going to stay up in orbit. Again, that same problem where you can't see all the way down, but it's going to start to take measurements. And then maybe in the future, we can get a landing craft out there to kind of see what's next. Okay. So,
0: uh,
1: yeah.
0: It's wild. With, um, it takes me back to the James Webb Telescope, and it recently sent back pictures of a supernova, right? One of the more famous supernovas. Yeah. Talk about what a supernova is. Totally.
1: So it's a big thing. So we got the sun, right? It is. It's. it's just. It. It's really fun. It's to try and think about how to explain it. So we got. You can kind of understand just from looking at it, not directly, but you know what I mean. We have a sun, and it's a fairly large size. But stars that go supernova are even bigger. These are huge, huge stars. And so what happens is. They burn out their fuel, and there's a cycle where right? you have hydrogen and you have helium, and you keep burning heavier and heavier stuff. But after a while, there's no more fuel left to burn. And so at that point, what you start to see is a bit of physics in process. and processes. So, very simply put, the star begins to collapse on itself, and then it produces this spectacular explosion that we see as a supernova. And um, one of the more famous examples actually is something that left behind what we call the Crab Nebula. And so that was actually spotted and marked by Chinese astronomers back in the uh, I think the 1050s when it uh, when it went, and you can still see the remnants with uh, telescopes like Hubble, and that just blows my mind, right? That was in not too long ago recorded human history, a thousand years ago. Still see it changing and shifting. So uh, yeah, that's a supernova. That's incredible. What about um,
0: as we're kind of wrapping up here? You yeah. you have to kind of. In my eyes, right, there's always, like, if somebody asks me about something that I'm interested in, I kind of have, like, a favorite stat or a favorite thing that, like, I'll tell people about it. Is there something that you, is that, do you have
1: something like that about space or what you... Kind of- ah, so um, the number of people who've gone to space is something like 600. It's a bit of a squishy number because there's debates about where space begins and what's an astronaut and all this stuff, but let's just start with 600 right. as our number, Okay. So we're sitting here in the year 2023. Um, That's all the way back since 1961. All right? So since 1961 to 2023, 60-some years, we've had 600 people-ish. I wouldn't be surprised to see that number accelerate very quickly once we get these private missions going more often because the Virgin Galactic is sending, you know, four people up or six people up every month and then Blue Origin comes back online. They've had to stop for a while because of an incident, but assuming they come back online soon, That's another six people going up maybe every month or every few weeks. And so all of a sudden, you're seeing people going up and down on really, really short missions. And if you count those in that big number of 600, you're going to start to see that start to click over really, really quick. Mm -hmm. And that's just so weird to me, right? Because there's, what, 7 billion of us now? 600 is just an infinitesimally small number compared to 7 billion. But it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And there's going to be more and more different types of people that are going as well, which I find even more inspiring than the number. Like, knowing that those two folks went up from the Caribbean, for example, means so much to me. Um, and then knowing also that we had people like uh, Haley Arsenault, that astronaut and inspiration for with SpaceX, uh, flew with a prosthesis, you know, which is amazing. It shows that we can have all types of people safely and greatly operating a spacecraft, and uh, there she was up there. So, yeah, I think that would be my number. The number of thousands.
0: Yeah. With... Um... With your career going forward, you know, I know you're um, right now you're doing a lot with the Artemis program and mission. Where can people find your work if they were you know looking for articles or things that you were covering so they can kind of follow what you're what you're covering?
1: So um, the difficult thing is social media is changing so quickly, but I do have a persistent website. And so you'll have my name in uh, the show notes and everything. So you just take all that Elizabeth Howell dot C.A. And that's usually a good spot to start to find out where I am. Right now, I'm writing for Space.com as their um, staff writer of Spaceflight, which is exactly what it sounds like. I'm talking about Artemis 2, which is one of my big things, being a Canadian with Canadian Jeremy Hansen on board. And uh, I'm also all over many social media networks. So just uh, keep looking for me. I if I'm not a preferred one, I'm on a different one, I've got like five or six now. I mean, I'm still trying to figure out what we're doing with LinkedIn. <laughs> like we're all on LinkedIn, right? And I and it's good you have the conversations, but I still sort of like I'm not too sure what I'm doing up here. <laughs> yeah, and
0: and, uh, and as you mentioned, I have your profile and everything for people that you sent me to, um, so that'll all be listed in the show notes. But thank you for joining me. It's been a pleasure having you on um, space. Just like you said, a supernova, right? It's just like so big. It's almost just hard to wrap your brain around it, your mind around it. Um, But I do believe there's a lot of cool stuff going on and, um, you know, I'm excited to talk to people like you so you can help me better understand it. So um, thank you so much for coming on.
1: Well, thank you for having me. And um, I'm just really get inspired by the younger folks coming underneath me because they're just so smart and they're going to solve a lot of problems that I haven't even thought about yet. And so I'm hoping that uh, if you enjoyed that show, just to keep getting curious and keep learning about this stuff and then uh, show me what you did in a few decades. I'll be watching. (laughs) (laughs) And you might be an astronaut by then. I sure hope so. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Give our partners some love by visiting their links in the show notes. Spinks convenience stores. You can find the location nearest you rebel rabbit seltzers. They're on a mission to socialize healthier and smarter. So join the mission and engineered sleep, making the best mattresses in the game. You might as well be sleeping on an engineered sleep mattress. For me, if you could give our show a five-star rating on your listening platform, that'd be greatly appreciated, and thank you so much for listening.